insomniacs welcome back to another episode of the night writer podcast firstly huge thanks to my little sis who created composed and played the intro music so thank you yasmin and before we get into the intro of this week's guest i just want to say this one is quite close to my heart because our guest is in the theatre industry which is also my industry um she's an actor writer and director as well and she's got a play on it's a one-woman show called by the light of the moon and i should probably tell you her name now she is shay donovan an american expat living in the uk shay works between london la and new york city as an interdisciplinary performing artist educator and artistic director of indigo arts collective she has a BFA in theatre performance, a BA in communications and minor in dance from Tulane University, and an MFA in acting from East 15 Acting School, and a Master's in contemporary performance practice from the University of East London. And she recently completed a short course in dramatic writing at Oxford University. Her one-woman show, By the Light of the Moon, premiered at the Hollywood Fringe Festival in the summer of 2019, and then travelled to the Manhattan Repertory Theatre in New York City for its off-Broadway debut. And finally, to the 2019 Clapham Fringe Festival. And now, this play is on at the Camden Fringe Festival from the 4th to 5th of August. So if you're London-based, seriously, come down and see this. It's on the 4th to the 5th of August at 6.30pm at the Aces and Hearts um, venue. And she's got a slot at the very popular, very historic Edinburgh Fringe Festival from August 15th to the 20th at the Space Perth Theatre on Northbridge at 10 past 1pm. But I'll put a link to all the tickets in the description and then uh, then you can see which one uh, is easier for you to travel to. Camden Fringe is my actual favourite festival. I've had a show on there and the vibe is so London. Um, it's just so chill. It's very supportive as well. I love it. And I'm actually going to see her show on the 4th. So if you are London-based or if you're coming down to the show and want to come along, we can create a Night Writer support group and then cheer Shay on from the audience. Um, in this episode, we chat all about her play, the theatre industry, but also our deep love for like fringe theatre and the need to just support new artists and new real raw stories and to get them from fringe to more mainstream uh, stages. Uh, I'm really passionate about that and so is Shay, so it was really lovely. We could have talked forever, but enough of me yapping. Let's hear her speak. <laughs> Enjoy and I will see you at either her show or in the next one. Bye. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Night Writer Podcast. I'm so excited for today's guest because she's in the same industry as me <laughs> in theatre. Uh, please welcome Shay Donovan. Hi Shay. Hi Christina, how are you? Thanks for having me. No, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, so Shay's here to promote her play. It's called By the Light of the Moon and it's a one-woman show, but I'm going to let her tell you all about that. So Shay, tell us all about this play. Yeah, so um, it's a it's a one woman show. It's set in the Oxford Lunatic Asylum in 1928, which was a real place. And I have more juicy details about that that I can share later on. Um, but we find this woman. She's alone there. She's an unreliable narrator. So we get things from her perspective and her account in sort of a fragmented way. But it's sort of unclear. Uh, what circumstances led her to be there until the end of the play and together with the audience through the sharing of her anecdotes and her memories and her stories she ends up coming to terms with the reality of her circumstances um so it is you know it's pretty dark it's based on true events i did a lot of research and collected the stories of many different women who were institutionalized in england and ireland um in the late 1800s early 1900s and found some of the most 
interesting sort of uh, dramatic pieces from all of their stories and pulled them all together to create this one fictional person. Um, but most of what's discussed in the play happened to real women who were put in similar circumstances. Um, and you know, it is, it's one of those things, I bring in the poetry of Edward Lear as well, who was a famous um, poet that wrote a lot of limericks, right, at the time that would have been in the canon of children's literature for a girl that grew up in that point in history. Um, he also was a really fascinating guy, really, really dark, um, struggled with his mental health, but wrote these poems filled with silliness and levity. And so his writing plays in the play a lot. She'll bring in some of his poetry. And so there's this light, um, sort of childlike quality about her in this really dark circumstance. Um, so yeah, that's that's the gist. That sounds so fascinating. And I saw some clips on your website, which I'll put a link in the description afterwards. Um, and it looks, it looks really, really good. It looks really intense, which is something that I love. Um, but as a one woman show, uh, how does it feel to, to kind of carry a show? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think, you know, like a lot of um, young people coming out of drama school at first, I wanted to produce something that was my own and I didn't have a big budget and the one person show was was the way to go so it began as a task of utility and then as i really got into it i realized sort of the weight of that and what that means and i was very fortunate i was able to workshop the first version of the show with a professor of mine at east 15 because i did um, a 10 minute version of the piece it began as a dissertation project when i was at drama school um so i had some guidance early on and then i took that guidance I was given on the initial version and did my best to, to self-direct and apply that to the rest of the work. Um, but it is, it's tricky, right? Because writing it and performing in it, obviously you lose a lot of your objectivity because it's all in your brain and you care so much about it. I think it's really important to be able to, even if you're not hiring a formal director, really seek out feedback as often as you can and really listen to what people have to say and not be too precious about it. Um, because that outside perspective is so important. But I, I toured the show in 2019. I did it here in London. Um, I did it in New York and I did it in LA um, and got some great feedback from that run. So it's had a long life, the show, and it continues to, to take on new life as it goes through its journey. So are you uh, directing it or do you have a director attached? To it. I don't. Yeah. So I'm, I, it's funny. I don't say that I direct it. I think it directs itself well, <laughs> through all of the feedback that it gets in all of its different modes. Right. I, I try and take in everything that I hear and, and apply that, but it is, yeah, it's, um, directed by me, I suppose. Written by you, produced by you, performed by, but that's, that's good because I like, say I, a lot on, on budget in terms of rehearsal space, you can just do it in your room or, but I can imagine that uh, surely, you, yeah, you would probably need other people to um, bounce ideas off and, yeah, think. Yeah. Um, and actually, so where I, my flat used to be an old orphan asylum and was built at a similar time period to the time period that my uh, show is set. So I do joke sometimes that I get a lot of inspiration um, from getting to, to rehearse. <laughs> yeah, in yeah no, that could be, you know, that could, that could be, because I actually live like where I live and it used to be an old a mental hospital and then they converted it all into houses and stuff. So yeah, and I write all stuff about that as well. So you don't know, you might be picking up on that energy around you. <laughs> um, how hard is it to tour around like New York and LA, like making the contacts and the finding the theaters and getting people to come and see it? Yeah, well, I have to say, um, 
sort of, so I, I'm from New York and then I lived in LA before I moved to London. So it's a little bit of a cheat because I have home bases in both of those cities. Um, so it's a lot lower lift for me to take a show home than it is for somebody to take, you know, to take a show to a new city. So I do have to say that that is not as impressive as it sounds perhaps. Um, but I, you know, I think researching venues, being really realistic about what you have to spend and what you're willing to lose is really important. Um, small runs can be your best friend, but then also you want to try and get as many people in as you can. Like I only did two shows in New York. I did a week of shows in LA. Um, bringing in audiences and places that you that you haven't been for a while, right? Even those being home bases, you do have to do a lot of legwork to get people in to see the show. There's such a saturation of one woman shows, especially in theater festivals. You really have to do your best to try and stand out. But I do think, you know, the advantage of my show is I have a bucket um, that is my prop. And then I use two chairs or blocks or whatever things that are like seats that the theater can source for me when I get there. And that's my whole set. So I have my co one costume over the whole time. I have a bucket. I have two chairs. I move them around in different configurations to make my different scenes. And that's it. So I do recommend for anyone thinking about sustainably touring something in a low budget way as an individual artist, um, create something that doesn't have a lot of set and props. Yeah. That one, <laughs> Get that over the country in customs actually. Fuck it. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was going to ask actually, what is the theater scene like in New York and LA? I, I can imagine they're quite different because they're both different sides of the country. And I'm quite fascinated by that because yeah, so far kind of London is my kind of bubble, um, but New York and LA obviously seem like the places um, and the audiences, I, I can imagine are quite different to British audiences. Yeah, I mean, I think, right, New York is sort of known uh, hand in hand with London, I think, to be sort of the theater capital of, of the world, right? And we have Broadway and we have people travel from all over the place to come and see theater in New York. And I think LA gets a bad rap. And when I was first moving to LA, people were like, oh, there's no theater. It's not a theater city. You know, it's all plays movies and New York is theater. Like that for me, that was always the way if you want theater, move to New York. If you want to go to the movie industry, Hollywood is LA. So, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, LA has such an amazingly rich theater scene and the theater community in LA is fantastic, which makes sense when you think about it. It's a city full of actors. Yeah. So naturally, um, but that's not what they're famous for. People don't go there for that. But the Hollywood Fringe Festival is spectacular. They do a great run every year with so many wonderful shows. Um, there are so many wonderful equity theater houses in, in LA. Um, some of the greatest theater of my life that I've, I've done, I did in Los Angeles. So, yeah, I think if people that anyone who's listening if you go to LA try and see a show there's theater everywhere you just have to kind of give it a quick google um but it really is fantastic and i'd say you know to some extent it might be a little more accessible to produce a small scale theater project in los angeles than in new york um probably less so now but especially when i first moved there it was more affordable um it's kind of catching up with new york now in a lot of ways so that affordability factor is fading but yeah, for New York, I'd say it is harder to produce small stuff independently and affordably. And there may be fewer clear opportunities to do that. But in LA, you have, I think, more room still to kind of play in a more low stakes financial way with small theater. Yeah, because I think fringe theater, I've always been a huge supporter of fringe theater in general, because I feel like there are stories that aren't really people aren't really going to see like the mainstream people because it's west end everyone wants to 
see and you end up forking out on sometimes like a hundred quid a ticket or which no one can really do and I think people that genuinely want to see this it's like well, I can't afford this so then I, I would say like just come to Fringe come and see the Fringe because same same amount of time you know 90 minutes no interval whatever uh, same amount of actors but it's a really good story and tickets are like 10 quid <laughs> so yeah you can it's it's I I'm a huge uh, supporter of that I feel like there should be more fringe stuff um and more of a kind of light on that um which obviously brings me to my next question um your show is on at camden fringe and edinburgh fringe um mm -hmm. so there's a few people that don't know uh, edinburgh fringe is the biggest fringe festival in the united kingdom and camden fringe is the biggest fringe festival in london so they're really quite big prolific uh, fringe festivals um i've had a play on at camden um at the etc theater which is my favorite um and it was it was intense it was intense um it's just it's just get it's just the energy of getting everything everyone seeing your show like the flyering and all that kind of stuff and trying to pull people in um so what are the dates for those and how's it going yeah so it's um <clears throat> it's the fourth fifth and sixth at camden um at the aces and eights um and i can post more details i think probably link that somewhere at the end and then it's the 15th through the 20th at the space um, one of the space venues in edinburgh um and i'll say what's great about the aces and ace is that it's a really tiny space and the stage itself is really tiny and i kind of selected it for that purpose i usually produce the show in a pretty small space um but the stage at the aces and ace it's so tiny they host a lot of stand-up comedy i'm sort of like off brand i think for a lot of what they produce but i'm really interested to see what happens performing the show in, in a confined space because confinement is such a theme of of the production um and i'm excited to play in that sort of small space and see what that does to my exploration of the work before going to edinburgh um this space in edinburgh is a little bit bigger and um, bigger house as well about 50 seats um which is uh, on par with the biggest place i've produced it so far i do like to keep it quite small um because the nature of the show is very intimate, right? She's divulging her secrets to the audience and it feels less authentic, I think, for me to do that in a big space. And of course, as one person with a minimal marketing budget, it's unrealistic for me to, to expect to fill um, a space. So I will say on the marketing side, I am a little bit behind and I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, anyone listening to this, please buy a ticket to my show. I think that's the hardest part as an individual person. Wearing this. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, I think it's going well. I've written some new scenes that haven't been staged yet. Um, so of course I'm feeling most nervous about those because I haven't gotten audience feedback yet, but you know, I'm hoping Camden will be useful for that. Yeah, Camden is usually, I think if Edinburgh everyone's kind of in and out and it's all quite quick. I, not that I've been, but it's from what I've heard, but Edinburgh. Um, but yeah, Camden is pretty, I would say chill. Um, um, and for Edinburgh, I suppose, because I mean, it's a one woman show, so it's quite easier, like you said, to go there on a budget. Um, how did you get that slot? Um, and what time are you on? actually? In Edinburgh? I'm at one. Oh, gosh, I should know off the top of my head. One thirty. Um, <clears throat> I'll post it in the link too. Um, time slot, yeah. because I think um, from what I've spoken to from, from actors who've been in shows and people who've gone to shows, evening is harder to get an audience because that's where the comedians are all out. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've been working with a great, um, the coordinator at the space is this wonderful man, Charles, and he actually, I first applied to go to Edinburgh in 2020 and had a contract with them and was supposed to take the show in 2020. And then, of course, yeah, we all know how 2020. <laughs> um, 
and then we they gave us the option to roll it over to next year um and i had a little bit of a concern about oh will the festival be the same things are just coming back um also personally my calendar had sort of filled up and it wasn't feeling like the right timing so i rolled it over again which is why now i'm going this year um but yeah he you know i shared what the show was about what my budget was the kind of space i was looking at um, and he made some timing recommendations for me to choose from based on some great institutional knowledge about the festival and what tends to do well when um so i'd say i mean certainly you want to go in with enough budget to have some choice um i think i probably went middle of the road right like i could have spent more and gotten a slightly later slot but to balance out my financial needs with what i wanted the show to do i ended up feeling like i was comfortably investing i think that's a big thing for people going to edinburgh or any festival right like imagine you're going to sell no tickets because you won't you'll sell some but imagine that you're going to sell no tickets and make no profit and only invest whatever amount feels comfortable with that expectation because i do think it's dangerous for artists to dig themselves a hole um, there are lots of wonderful small festivals with low lift buy-ins that you can start with before throwing all of your money at edinburgh um yeah, yeah I found a great Airbnb slightly out of the city and I booked it like a year ago. So I think that, you know, the further ahead you can plan as well, yeah. the better you have more options. You don't, obviously, because you're not traveling with like anyone else, like other actors or like any, um, and in terms of like set, there's no one to build something you're taking it all with you, I assume. Um, what about like lighting and sound and stuff? Yeah, so um, the light, the, the light design is pretty minimal. Um, it sort of shifts between, um, cool and warm tones based on what sort of recollection she's in so the light slightly mirrors her state of mind um, but in a pretty minimal way um, and the sound as well is pretty straightforward there are some pretty jarring sound cues in between each sort of scene um, the scenes are almost like little vignettes and they're their own sort of packaged individual stories and there's some weave through that happens but for the most part they're sort of these isolated segments um, so the sound designer that I worked with in Los Angeles had a great idea to make these really interesting transitional sound bites, and I use those still for the show. Um, and then there are a few little sound cues, but it's really just one piece of music that comes back um, throughout the show. So it's similar to the chair in the bucket vibe. It's it's pretty a uh, low lift and pretty straightforward, but I think packs a powerful punch. Did you do it yourself, the lighting and the sound? Um, I did it myself in the sense that I was like, here is my vision for what this will be like. Um, the sound, again, the, the LA sound designer inspired the sound and then I made it. Um, and the light, yeah, I just sort of, every venue I go into, I describe sort of what I want and show them how it was done last time and whatever talented technician is there is able to replicate that for me. So, you know, I did in my undergrad, we had to study light and sound and that sort of stuff a little bit, but it's not, um, I wouldn't say that's a strong skill that I have, but I know sort of what I want. And I, I have a good sense, I think, of what's high lift and what's achievable. Um, so I can go in and not ask for anything that's too unrealistic for the space. That's that's really good because you have that mindset, obviously. Um, like for me, working with the many people, like producers, directors, everyone, and we all sit down for the table read, because I think very kind of cinematically theater. So it's like scene changes and this. And then at the end, you've got the lighting designer and the set designer and the sound engineer all looking and going, so not scene changes. <laughs> like, how are we gonna make this work? I'm like, sorry, sorry. I think it helps. I spent a lot of time directing children's theater. I was the director of a performing arts department where I 
selected the show, cast the show, choreographed, directed, and sometimes musical directed the show, did all the lights, usually with the help of like some teenagers, <laughs> and really had to sort of learn how to be a scrappy solo theater maker, but like to produce a musical with like 20 children um, in a beautiful theater space, but just with with me as sort of the primary um, person. And that was, gosh, I spent like five summers doing that and it was such a blast and I learned so much and it really honed my skill of getting really scrappy and creative, like with the, you know, minimal sort of uh, materials and budget, how can we produce the highest quality product? So that was a really great place for me to play and workshop those skills. Yeah, and probably taught you a lot about patience as well. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. Do you, so do you, actually, do you prefer working um, alone as, as a sort of independent um, or do you like kind of working with other actors and, you know, team or a company? Yeah, I think it depends on the kind of project, right? Like I think this piece is very insular and it's inside one person's mind. And I don't know that it would have served the work to have a ton of collaborators on that because then you're creating a character that's of many people's brains. So I think for this purpose, it actually worked out well, but I do produce um, larger scale projects. During COVID, I managed a virtual project with like a hundred plus collaborators. Um, I recently led a project with like six other performers that was a devised workshopped project. So I think it depends on what I'm trying to communicate, but I do think for the most part, working collaboratively yeah, has to yield more innovation and more creativity, right? The more brains you have, um, the more sparks you have in the room. So I do love working in that way. But for this piece in particular, it felt like it needed to be a, a mostly solo endeavor. And if it gets, um, or when it gets, West End transfer, would you, um, obviously, like the, the people picking it up would probably have their own like ideas or probably want to attach a director to you. How far are you willing to yield on that <laughs> score? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the show has, it's kind of a blank slate, right? Like as I've been describing it, I'm sure you can, it is, it's pretty, there's a lot you could do. And I do sometimes think about like different directions it could go in terms of what might be added on or how, um, particularly like, could I make the soundscape more rich and could that, because it's a lot of sense memory and a lot of the language in it is very sense oriented. So I've considered how that might be able to be played with in different ways to sort of elevate the piece. Um, yeah, I'd love, I'd love someone to be excited enough about it to want to, um, take it to a, another level. So I think for me, what's important to maintain is that there are no other characters introduced. All the other characters that you sort of come to know are just through her description. And I think her being alone is very important. Um, and there are certain parts, certain sections of the text that I would maybe fight to keep. But other than that, yeah, everyone come talk to me about, uh, staging my show. <laughs> you know, Fleabag, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, she started off as a one-woman show in Edinburgh Fringe in a, in a room above a pub, I think, um, like nearly nine years ago. And then obviously that, but when they converted that into TV, they then brought in all the characters that she mentioned. So I, I know it's completely different mediums, but I suppose if it was like going into film, because from what you described, it seemed very um, sort of visionary. Um, I presume they would bring in other characters or, oh, I mean, it's, the film version for sure yeah we'll have all the, all the, all the characters in the film version um but yeah it, you know it's it's interesting too because you know i i think i don't know that historical period dramas are super trendy right now necessarily but it is i think a story that has 
a lot of contemporary implications. And when, you know, without giving too much away, when we get into sort of the themes of the work and, and why she's there and, and what happened to her, it pulls us in pretty directly to a lot of contemporary discussions and themes about women and the Me Too movement and mental health and that sort of thing. So it's it's relevant in sort of an unsuspecting way, but I do think, you know, it's can be sometimes tricky to get people to be like, hey, you want to come to this like really depressing period drama <laughs> when there's so much light contemporary work going on. So that I think, you know, if anyone has the secret to unlocking that marketing trick, that's I think the piece I'm I'm missing in my journey that I'd love to well, tap into more. I think that's a good way to get people in because I'll be like, I'll come, I'll come. <laughs> I think there is something very human about that kind of stuff. I mean, yes, it is, it would be like dark and depressing, but there is something very raw and real. Um, like you said, and it taps into themes. You said it was based on uh, true events. Um, so going back to that, actually the root of the story, what was your inspiration for that? And why did you decide to write this? Yeah, so um, I'm really fascinated with... Um, so my, my family is Irish American. We've been in the States for a bunch of generations, but we have family still over in Ireland and I'm really interested in Irish history and um, particularly with recent sort of um, <clears throat> things going on in Ireland with the discovery of unmarked graves at mother and baby homes and all these sorts of things coming up about Irish institutions for unwed mothers. I found that really fascinating and was doing just some independent research on that. And then that brought me into the world of um, asylums in in the UK and in Ireland during that time and sort of women in those circumstances and that sort of thing. So that led me down that rabbit hole to create this piece. Um, but actually I did a master's where my dissertation was an immersive piece about um, mother and baby homes in Ireland and I'm doing my PhD right now um, on exploring that subject creatively. Um, so I'm very I'm very invested in um, <laughs> the carceral punishment of women for things they didn't do wrong historically that's sort of my uh my thing uh so that's sort of what prompted this and and transparently um originally i was going to have the piece be about mother and baby homes in ireland and and set it there but my um i've been trained in british dialects and drama school my whole life and even though i have family members with irish accents i'm not i'm not trained in that dialect and i was less confident doing that on stage so i ended up writing and setting this the play in england from a purely technical perspective of being um, more efficient in that dialect. Um, so that's sort of what where this show came out of was me beginning to explore that creatively, running into the the dialect problem, not having time to find a coach to work with, and then setting it in England instead. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Actually, when I saw your name, I thought you were Irish and Jay Donovan. That's very Irish. Um so yeah, so it's on at Camden, it's on Edinburgh. What are your plans for the future post this for the play, or are you just taking it one step at a time? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. I think I'm I'm just sort of wrapping up the early stages of my the first six months of my PhD. And I imagine that's going to be my focus for the next few years is developing the piece. Um, because it's a practice as research project. So I'll be developing a performance piece in conjunction with my research. Um and I think that will probably take a lot of my focus, but this does go hand in hand with that in a lot of ways. There are a lot of intersecting overlapping themes. Um, so I think I might put this piece to bed for a while, but certainly it's it's revivable should I ever need to sort of take it out again. Uh, I've also been, you know, with COVID, a lot of artists did this, but I've developed a sort of 
virtual collaborative methodology, which means that I can sort of create projects with people now in remote places. Um, and those tend to be a little bit lower lift in terms of things that can pick up and work, you know, easily in, in conjunction with other projects. So I might go down that road a little more. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm transitioning, I think, more from purely performer into performer practitioner. Um, which is exciting and is a little scary to leave behind your like I'm an actor only identity, especially coming from a BFA to an MFA and having that be my my life for so long in a, in a you know drama school context. But I do think, especially as we travel through time as women in the arts, it's important to expand your wheelhouse and make sure you have a lot of skills that you can leverage to stay in that scene. So yeah, looking ahead to all of that. Yeah, I completely agree with that. <laughs> yeah, we definitely have to because otherwise then you're going to be, if you, there are projects you want to create and then you're just like, well, what? I know there are a lot of actors probably and creators out there listening, um, thinking like, I, I want to do this, but how do I get by doing this? Well, just take Shay's inspiration, Wolf of a Show, written and directed all by herself um, and found, um, made contacts. Um, how hard was it to kind of get the slots in like Camden and Edinburgh? I mean, we're familiar with the fringe theatre here as opposed to in America? Yeah, I mean, I had done the Clapham Fringe in 2019 and had seen a lot of fringe theater here because I've been here for almost six years now and was in drama school here for two of those years. So was constantly seeing a lot of fringe theater and, you know, had classmates that were doing a lot of fringe theater. I personally found it pretty straightforward. I mean, I found venues I was interested. I sent them my information and they were like, cool, what slot do you want? Um, so I don't know if that's everyone's journey. That's been my experience pretty universally in the fringe scene in the Hollywood fringe here in London at Clapham and Camden and for Edinburgh as well. Um, but I think I've had a well-packaged pitch every time, right? Like I, I send really clear copy about what the show is about that I think is compelling and I've had other people read. I have images from producing the show before, which is a great advantage. I'd say if you haven't produced a show yet and you don't have press images, get a friend with a camera to take some cool pictures of you that seem like your show. I mean, having some compelling images, I think is really helpful for people. Um, I have video clips, like you've mentioned that, you know, that you've seen. So I did sort of send everything in a really nicely wrapped up bundle each time, which I think makes it easier for venues to feel confident saying yes to you because they see that you've already put a lot of work in to create polish around what you're working on. And how do you find that balance between that kind of working? Cause it's just you doing it and, and finding things and getting this um, up and running and then balancing like your personal life as well. Cause it kind of seems like it would be all time consuming. And you mentioned that you're studying for a PhD. It's like a lot. Yeah, I also have like a job job too. So I have, um, you know, funds for, for producing my theater and, and to do things that I want. So yeah, I'd say, um, my husband would probably say that I don't have enough time for my uh, my personal life. I am very busy, but I do think I I love that personally, being surrounded, having lots of projects on the go at once and having lots of places to channel my creative energy is exciting for me. Um, I think you definitely need breaks, right? Like post Edinburgh, I'm really just going to focus on my research and my work and, and give myself a few months to kind of come down from that before I pick up something else. So it's important to give yourself rest periods, yeah. but yeah. And, and having someone who holds you accountable to be like, that's enough, especially when you're working on really heavy material. Yeah. Um, it can be really, it's hard to go into, right? There are some days where I'm like, I'm actually not going to rehearse this scene today. 
I don't, this is not a place where I want to take myself today and I'm going to prioritize what I can do that's productive for my show that isn't going to be too mentally taxing. So I think you have to keep tabs on that for sure. Yeah, I, I completely understand. Um, when I write really heavy stuff, sometimes I have to take a break or just watch comedy. I feel I feel like I debrief that way better because you're just like, okay, <laughs> need to watch Friends or just something to something silly to just get your mind away from that space. Um, but I'm so looking forward to. This. I actually um, might come and see you at Camden. Actually, I want to come and see. Great, you. yeah, please. He's an actor as well, so yeah, we can come see you this week, next week, next week, next week. Um, good luck with it. <laughs> good luck with the preparation for Edinburgh. It's going to be great. Um, I'll, I'll put a link in all the descriptions and everything and, and to your website as well. Um, especially if this is going to be like one of the things you'll be doing for a while. I want to come and see what this fill out there. Um, yeah. But thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thank you. And I'll say if anyone listening, if there are any other one woman shows going to Edinburgh, I do think the fringe world needs like a one woman show social network of some kind. So if anyone wants to reach out, we can create a little girl group and meet up for some drinks and see some shows together as we're solo travelers and performers. I would totally welcome that. Oh, yes, do that. Let's do that anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Christina. Bye. Bye, everyone.